we are in First John chapter one, verse one, and we are starting the first division. There are two divisions of this book: walking in the light with Yahweh is the first division, and this is First John chapter one, verses one through chapter two, verse twenty-nine. In this first division, John establishes that Yahweh is light, and that only those who are light can walk in the light and have fellowship with Him. John begins with a prologue and then gives four conditions that one must meet when claiming that they are walking in the light with Yahweh. Those who truly walk in the light renounce sin and are obedient, reject worldliness, and keep the faith. Not only are these the marks of the true believer, but they are also become the assurance of salvation. So he's going to go through four conditions of what it means to truly say, I am a believer, I know God, and I am in fellowship with him. And not only are these a litmus test, so to speak, for true belief, but it also becomes an assurance that you truly are saved. John is refuting the false teachers who believe and teach that one can walk in the light with Yahweh, but not pursue these conditions. He then explains how one does become righteous so that they can be in the light and have fellowship with Yahweh. For John, the only answer is through the sacrifice and the atoning blood of Jesus Christ as the God-man. So we talked about the first primary purpose of this book is to assure the believers that they truly have salvation and that they are in fellowship with God. And the second purpose is to refute the false teachers who claim that pretty much you can kind of believe and do whatever you want as long as it's like this Christ-like idea. And so this is what he's doing. The first section in this division is the prologue. It's the opening introduction to the book. And it's called The Word of Life, and it's the first four verses of chapter 1. In this section of his letter, John opens by giving his credentials, justifying why the readers should listen to his testimony rather than that of the false teachers of who Jesus is. He and others who can validate his testimony were with Jesus, whereas the false teachers were not. John also begins by arguing that the spiritual, eternal word, which is Yahweh, is the same Jesus who came in the flesh to minister to humanity. The false teachers would deny that the spiritual word would actually become flesh. So that's what we're dealing with. So chapter 1, verse 1. This is what we proclaim to you. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and with our hands and have touched, concerning the word of life, and the life that was revealed, we have seen and testify and announced to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we announce to you too, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Thus we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The we... Is very important because John is refuting the false teachers. He's speaking to his church. And remember, the church is made up of three different groups. Those who are Greeks and have this idea that the body doesn't matter and all that there is is a spiritual and a God and that kind of stuff. And they've converted to Christianity and they believed in Jesus, the God-man, but they're still wrestling with the humanity of Jesus their family is telling them this is a dumb idea to believe in his humanity. Why would a God ever become human? What is important about the human body that you would even revere it? And then the other group is the Jews who are leaving Judaism, embracing Jesus, the God-man, 
But their family and stuff are saying, no, God is not a human. God is not a human. Do not go that route. And now they're struggling. And the other group are the believers, both from Greeks and Jews, who've bought in completely to it and really accept it. And so John's writing to them because the false teachers are coming in and saying all this weird stuff. And now they're torn between these very charismatic, very intelligent people and John and the disciples who saw and there were the origins of the gospel, um, the first preaching origins. And so John is writing, we, we. It's not just me. It's multiple of us who have this understanding of who Christ is. And not just we, the disciples, but we as in the many other people who walked with Jesus and saw him and heard his teachings. Though the disciples were chosen, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who were there and witnessed this Christ and listened to him teach and they followed him and all that kind of stuff. And so this is what he's talking about. And so now that he establishes that there's more than just him, he says, what we have proclaimed to you, what was from the beginning, what we have seen with our eyes and what we have looked with our hands and touched. Now this is important because he's not only just saying, I personally saw Christ and I heard him, but I also touched him. He is not just some spiritual, ethereal, godlike being who came down to the earth and gave us wisdom and teaching. He is a physical being. I touched him. We held hands. We hugged each other. I, he broke bread and handed it to me. I, I mean, remember John. He's the one that was leaning up against Jesus in the upper room. I saw his resurrected body. We touched it. This is real. It's all five senses are being invoked here. Then he says, from the beginning, from the very beginning. Now, most likely, John is not referring back to John chapter 1, where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, referring to Jesus. Even though that's how he opened up his first letter, the beginning here is not that beginning. The beginning is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's the beginning of John's encounter and all the disciples. And this is important because he says, from the very, very, very beginning, what we have heard. And that makes it very clear because John could not say from the very beginning what we heard because he was not there at creation when the word was God and creating the world. And so what he's arguing is from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, I was there. And this is important because he's not saying I just came in as a late person or I was kind of there here and there. I was with him from the very beginning and I was chosen. Now what's powerful about this is very, very rarely do the disciples or the writers of the Bible ever give their credentials? Very rarely do they. Most of the time they begin with, I am a slave of Christ, or um, Jesus Christ the Father, and that kind of stuff. Peter starts off with the glories and the sovereignty of God the Father. But this is one of the very few times that John starts off with his credentials. And he's not stacking his credentials up like, hey, I wrote all these books and I'm a bestseller and I got a PhD in this and a PhD in that and this is why you should listen to me. This is how we typically introduce people. What he's doing is saying, I was there. I saw. I was a witness. And there is a little bit credentialing here where he's saying, I was chosen by Christ and these false teachers were not. But it's not for... I'm awesome and they're not. It's like, I was the one that was there. They were never there. And this is what he's really arguing off the bat. Are you going to listen to people who were not there, who came in later into the church, 
how these ideas that don't match up to what you've been taught and why you came to Christ sound exactly like the Greeks that left you hopeless and futile in the world that you live in? Or are you going to listen to us who are prolific and have written much about who he is with eyewitness accounts, Luke research, and, in, and, and, and interview tons of people? Are you going to take that word or this word? And that's the point that John is making here to his audience. I know you're struggling with who to believe, but remember what, who first gave you the gospel and who were the latecomers to all of this. When you get to the end of the touch, at the very end of verse 1, begins a parenthetical statement concerning the word of life. And that parenthetical statement goes all the way through verse 2. And basically what he's doing is he's saying from the very beginning, I was there, I saw him, I touched him, and concerning the word of life, and then he's going to give you a parenthetical statement unpacking what he means by the word of life. And the word of life was revealed, and we have seen and testify and announced to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. So the word of life provides context to what he's talking about. And so his qualifying is, he has touched this, and what is it that he touched? Now he's jumping into John 1.1, the gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And now he's tapping into that, and you know that because he says, this is the word of life that I saw, and that life was revealed, meaning that it's always existed, but now there was a time that it came in and revealed itself. And we have seen and testified and announced to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. So now he's tapping him back into the gospel that he wrote. And he's saying that word that I talked about in the gospel that was in the beginning with God and is God. That's the word that revealed himself to us in the flesh. That's the word that we saw. That's the word that we touched. And so in this moment, John is fully embracing the God-man of Jesus. In this one sentence, he has now come out of the gate saying, he was a physical human that I touched and lived life with. But concerning this human, he was also there from the very beginning. And now he's revealed himself as God to us in the flesh. This is the word of life. And there is no other word of life that has ever been spoken to you by any other person that witnessed him, lived with him, and was chosen by him. The only people who deny this are the ones who came later into the picture, later into the story. And this is John's point as he's arguing this. He was revealed to us. The word revealed is very important here as well because... Revealed is a God-initiated thing. For the Greeks, the understanding of God, the God-mind, the God-force, the understanding of salvation, the understanding of the universe, that is you. You discover it through your own wisdom, through your own knowledge, through your own secret teachings and meditations and that kind of stuff. And who the God-mind is, is always veiled and kept from everyone. And only the worthy prove themselves to be, see it. What John is saying is this was revealed to us. 
Because remember, in one way, the Bible does agree with the teachings of the Greeks. The Bible teaches, the Greeks said, God is unknowable. And the Bible would say, yes, you're right, God is unknowable. He is way beyond your understanding. He is unfathomable. There's nothing in the finite brain of a human that can discover and, and know him on its own resources. That's why God revealed himself. He revealed himself in the garden when he came to Adam and Eve and walked with them. He revealed himself to them when he pursued them after they sinned. He revealed himself to Cain when he pursued him. He revealed himself to Abraham when he came to him. He revealed himself to the patriarchs and visions after visions. He revealed himself to Moses. He revealed himself in the law. He revealed himself through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. He is constantly revealing himself to us because we are doomed without God if we're left to our own devices to figure out who he is. And so in some ways, you're right, Greeks. God is mysterious. He is unknowable. But you are thinking that you can do it on your own. Where God came down in the flesh and revealed himself to us. This isn't me. This is where John comes back to. Now I'm not waving my credentials anymore. I'm not somehow more special and more intelligent than all of you that somehow I figured it out and you didn't. And now I am helping you, young Padawan. He's saying this was revealed to everybody. He came down in the flesh. And, and, and people, the, the poor shepherds saw him. The, 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 the intellectual magi saw him. People who were crippled and lame saw him. The, the Pharisees saw him. Roman soldiers saw him. Everybody saw him. It was not exclusive to anybody. And this is what John is reminding them of, is that this has been revealed to us. In John's gospel, he first emphasized Jesus as the eternal spiritual word. And then he discussed his incarnation as an introduction to the life of Jesus Christ. However, since the false teachers missed this in John chapter 114, it's that selective reading. Because remember, John begins by saying, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word was the light of mankind, and the light came into the darkness. But the darkness did not accept nor receive the light. But... In verse 14, he goes down and says, And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us or dwelt among us. And so John is reminding them, I know you got really super excited, you Greek false teachers, when you begin to read my gospel. And I said the Logos and the Logos is God and the Logos is all this stuff. And then you might have stopped reading when you got to verse 14 or missed it. But I'm going back there and I'm highlighting it. Because they've been reading his gospel and they've been amening it. But they have selectively left out certain things. And they've reinterpreted. And John's going back there and reminding him that this is the eternal world that was physical. This is the first point that he wants his readers to accept and understand. Because without this, there is no death and resurrection for their sins. If you can't embrace that Jesus is the God-man, then you're screwed. And there's no, no point and investing yourself in Christianity anymore. Paul says that without the resurrection, our faith is futile. That is everything. Everything else is just meaningless. And so this is the first point that John wants them to understand. In verse 3, What we have seen and what we have heard announced to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, John also goes further than the disciples or the the false teachers. Because first he starts off with, this is the word that became flesh 
and I was chosen, and I saw him, and I touched him, and you didn't. Therefore, my credentials carry more weight. Then he goes in and says, and not only that, it was revealed to us. It's not some secret thing that you can try to achieve on your own, but it was revealed to us. Lots of people saw this and witnessed this. Now he emphasizes the third point. What we have seen and heard, we announced. Unlike the false teachers, we didn't keep it to ourselves. And when you wanted to know the answers were like, prove it. Prove yourself worthy. Figure it out on your own. And when you're close, I'll say warm. And when you're far away, I'll say cold. Okay? We didn't do that. We didn't go up into an ivy tower and start stacking up our PhDs and becoming exclusive against you and making you prove yourself and all this kind of stuff. We came down in the streets just like Jesus did, and we walked among you, and we traveled the world, and we began to reveal to you everything that he taught us. We didn't keep anything secret. We didn't keep anything held from you. We revealed it to you. And this is the point that John is making. We revealed it. It was not exclusive. So at this point, we begin another. And why do we reveal this? So you may have fellowship with us. And then he goes in a parenthetical statement. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So that you can have fellowship with us. Not be excluded. Not prove yourself. But that you can have fellowship with us. And what makes our fellowship so special? Because it's with the Father and it's with the Son. The Father who revealed His Son to us without you having to prove yourself and be intellectually certain intelligence or have certain works. And the Father revealed His Son and gave us the great commission to reveal it and make it known to you as well. Nothing about this is exclusive. Yes, salvation is exclusive to those who have faith, but the knowledge and the understanding and the revelation is not exclusive. The Word of God is free to all people. And that's important. Yes, there are certain things you have to do to be saved. Have faith. But there are not certain things you have to do to know what it means to have faith and to be saved. The word fellowship here has the idea of entering into a business partner with somebody. It goes beyond just kind of hanging out at Thanksgiving or hanging out with a bunch of friends in the dorm room or something like that. And the idea is that two people are joined together in a contract. And they're now completely dependent upon each other in making this business successful. And so this is the word that John is using for fellowship. Yes, there is that intimate um, brotherly fellowship and sisterly fellowship of community and laughing and thanksgiving kind ofness with it. But what John's trying to emphasize here is that this kind of fellowship is where we enter into a covenant with each other become partners with each other, we're dependent upon each other, and we work side by side for a common goal of promoting the revelation of Jesus Christ so that people may have fellowship with him. This is not just something that you get membership and now you can sit in the gentleman's club with your cigar and your, your, your cognac and now have all these privileges and enjoy your solace by the fire because you earn credentials it's so that we can go, come together in fellowship and go out with a common purpose and a common goal to make other people or to reveal Christ to other people so that they may have fellowship. And that's the idea of this word fellowship is not just hanging out and enjoying each other, but a partnership for a common goal, a common purpose to accomplish a task. 
their common belief, what binds them is Christ. It's not what they know. It's not their credentials. It's not their PhDs. It's not their works. It's not what they even built. It's not the ministry that they created. What binds them together is their belief in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Therefore, in order to have fellowship, you must have faith. That's the only thing that's required. If what binds us together is Jesus Christ, and that is what allows for fellowship, then that's what you must join into. And beyond that, that's it. You don't have to have works. You don't have to have certain intelligence. You don't have to achieve a certain understanding of the universe. You don't have to be a certain ethnicity, a certain gender, a certain age. You just have to embrace this Jesus, human, Christ, God. And once you do that, everything is revealed and you have fellowship. In fact, everything's revealed before you accept that. You're accepting what is already fully revealed and then you have fellowship with him. And this is the point that John is making. In contrast, the false teachers have all these things that you have to do. The idea of fellowship is based on some personal, relative, subjective, esoteric experience that they had with theirs. There is nothing objective to bring the people into a community. And in these religions, the idea is that it's what you feel on the inside. It's what you intuit in your mind. It's what you figured out. It's the way that you understand it from your perspective, like coming to a piece of artwork and somebody's looking at this light switch on the wall that's a piece of artwork and somebody's like, oh, it means this to me and I I feel this sense that the light is invading and coming in and that person's like, oh, but we can go back and forth between light. Like, right? You, You hear these art critics and they talk about art and one thing says this, another person says that, or or you're listening to a song and you're like, I feel like the song means this to me. And somebody's like, no, it isn't. It's about a breakup. And no, it's a beautiful love song, right? And you're like, oh, but you're both right. The artist wrote it in such a vague way that you can both feel what you want to feel and however it impacts you. And John's like, no, 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 no. That's what the false teachers want to give you. But how do you have fellowship over that? There's no common link. If you feel something and I feel something completely different, we're not connected. And yes, I get that. Like you might be sad and I'd be happy, but I care about you. So I join you in your sadness and connect to you. But that's not the way the false teachers work. It's like, no, this is truth, what I'm feeling. And that's all that matters. This is what I accomplished. And that's all that matters. This is my interpretation. And that's all that matters. And it's okay, because all truths are lead you to God. But if I have a completely different truth than you, and a completely different interpretation than you, and a completely subjective experience than you, and we can't connect in any kind of way or agree in any kind of way, then how in the world are we going to have fellowship? How are we going to be committed to a common task or a common goal? And so this is what John is arguing. Like, yes, Christ came and revealed himself to all people, and all you have to do is embrace him, but you must embrace certain truths. If Jesus Christ is the God-man who came and died on the cross for your sins, and you deny that he is human, and you deny his death and resurrection, and you claim that it's just his teachings, then are we talking about the same guy anymore? Right? If you say, hey, do you know John? That guy at work in the office down the hallway, and I'm like, oh, yeah. 
he's an amazing guy and he did this and that and that and he was there for me helping he's so funny and all that kind of stuff and kind and generous and the other person's like no he's an absolute jerk he's always cruel to people all the time he does he's not funny at all his jokes are the most dumb things ever right he's never there for you he's selfish he stays in his cubicle all the time and then just yells and treats people like crap right and what's your first comment going to be are we talking about the same person right and this is the point that john's making if if these greek if these greek scholars if these greek intellectuals can't even agree on what really is the truth of who Jesus is. And because they all got their own flavor. They all agree that he's not exactly human. There's no resurrection. But everything beyond that is all subjective. If they can't agree, then are we even talking about the same person? And then, and w- then why are we joining this? And what are we a part of? And this is the argument that John is making. Thus, thus, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Christ said when he came, I have come to make your joy complete. The first prophecy of Jesus Christ ever is Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. And it says that the scepter, the ruler's staff, will not depart from the feet of Judah, the first the fourth son of Jacob, but the head of the tribe of Judah, the first Judaite ever in Israel. It will not depart between your feet until it comes to the one whom it belongs. And he will tie his donkey, kingship, it's symbolic of kingship, to the vine, which is symbolic of wine, which is symbolic of life and joy abundantly. He will wash his garments in the blood of grapes, meaning he will be clothed with the abundance of life and joy. His eyes will be darker than wine, which means his eyes, which are the windows to the soul, the character and the personality, will be filled with abundance of joy and life. And his teeth will be whiter than milk, which means the words that come out of his mouth will be sweet and life-giving, like milk for a baby. And what did Jesus say when he came? I have come to give you life to the fullest and make your joy complete. And that's what John is saying. From the very beginning to the moment that Christ showed up, it's always about God revealing himself to give you life to the fullest and to make your joy complete. And Christ has revealed himself as the God-man to us and to all people, thousands of people. Not exclusive to certain people. And then he has given us a great commission to go out and reveal it to you as well, keeping nothing hidden from you. A singular truth that he is the God-man who died on the cross for your sins coming from the Father, who is God and one with God. And we are driven by this mission and this revelation to you so that you may have fellowship with us and the Father and the Son. Because it is only in this fellowship that we are truly bound together with a common goal. And it's only in that common goal fellowship that we can have joy. There is no joy in isolation. There is no joy in you having an understanding of God and being completely isolated because you're right and everybody else has got a different truth. And what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. There's no connection there. There's no joy. There's no fellowship. 
There, there's no fellowship with a God that is disembodied, weighed up in the universe and never comes into the material realm and never hangs out with you. There's no joy in that. There's no fellowship, therefore there's no joy. The only way you can have joy complete is that the Father, who's the source of all life, comes down and lives with us and makes himself known. And the only way you can have joy is if you have fellowship and connection and relationships with other people. And the only thing that allows your connection, your relationship to transcend time and your suffering and your trials is if you're connected together with a common goal that goes beyond and outside of you in time, and that's the Father who is eternal. And the only way you can know that is if he reveals himself and comes down and becomes what lives among you. And see the cyclical pattern here? All, all this is temporary and finite and material. So what fellowship do you have with God if you can't know him and he never enters? So he has to make himself known. And then that common goal is what gives you fellowship. But what kind of fellowship do you have with each other if you're connected to an idea that you can't know? Or is disconnected or out there? Or is bound by time in the material realm? Therefore, the fellowship you have with is with a God who is eternal, the word of life, but also became the physical life. And this is how John introduces his gospel. And this is why John is saying the most important thing for us as a church today is to embrace these truths. For anyone to deny the humanity of Jesus is a threat to your fellowship and community. I don't mean they're a threat that they must be eliminated, but it's just a threat. It's a threat to the fellowship. When people start coming in and say, no, he was not human, then that means God never made himself known on earth, which means you have nothing that's binding you together and connecting you that transcends time because God is still just way out there disconnected. And therefore, you have no joy and you have no fellowship. To deny his godhood means that the Jesus who is only human is bound by the finite time as well. And when he dies and he goes, then you're just latching on to some historical figure who did some great things and you're just collecting really cool historical trading cards with each other. What John is saying is what is absolutely central for the church is you must embrace that he is not only God-man for your own salvation, but you must embrace that he is the God-man for your fellowship for your sense of joy because only God transcends everything that is finite here and only God as human and Jesus Christ allows you to connect that and that's what binds us that's what's been revealed to us that's what nobody has a corner market on and that's what allows us to have life to the fullest and joy complete to those who are struggling with your family members are saying, no, he's only God. And the other of you that are struggling with your family members that he's only human. What kind of fellowship do you have with them? Do you have something that transcends time? Do you have something that really brought you life? Do you have something that really brought you joy? And my guess is no, you don't, because there's a reason you left that and came to the faith to begin with. And that's the point. And for us, for some of us who came to Christ late in life, that's very powerful. Oh yeah, I remember what life before Christ was. For us who grew up in the church, it's a little harder because that's all we've ever known. But chances are, if you grew up in the church, you probably also had a crisis moment where you kind of abandoned everything 
and then found out the crazy hopelessness of life and then came back. And you need to hold on to that as well. You need to hold on to that as well. This is important because the false teachers are not interested in fellowship. Not only do they not have a universal transcendent thing that will bind them together, but they're not even interested in fellowship. People who think like this don't really want to hang out with you. The many people say, I've got an exclusive corner market understanding on something, and it's my knowledge and my understanding that achieved that, and you, if you prove yourself worthy or you work hard enough, I will take you on young Padawan, and I will make you go through all these hoops and initiations to prove yourself worthy, and then maybe I'll share some things with you. But you, people like that don't want fellowship. And maybe they want it deep down inside, but they have gotten so trapped and cyclical in this way of thinking, and it makes them feel so powerful in control that they forget that deep down inside they really want fellowship. And so John is not only arguing that they don't know this like he does because they weren't there with Jesus and chosen by him. Not only is he arguing that they don't know this because their subjectiveness doesn't even connect anybody and how can you believe this and that, but now he's arguing that they don't want fellowship with you. And, and that's what you, the cry of every human's heart is to be heard and seen and to know that they have value. And they're not bringing that to you. They're not bringing that to you. For John, Christianity is rooted in a historical events and truths about Jesus Christ's life, not in personal experiences. Yes, your personal experiences are absolutely essential. I know that I'm a believer because I have both studied and seen that the evidence for the Bible and Christ is overwhelming compared to all the other options out there. But I'm also a believer because of the, I have experienced him. I have experienced him. And so John is not denying the experiential part of salvation and knowing God. But what he's saying is that salvation is ultimately rooted in a truth of who Christ is. Because without the foundational truth of the word of God revealed as the God-man through only one source, Jesus, then your experiential stuff has no anchors and no hooks, nothing to bind it and keep it. And then your emotion, we all know how quickly our emotions change and how easily we can just be persuaded and taken along because this feels good. I mean, I'm a very logical and cynical person, and yet I still find myself like, oh, that sounds really good, and that feels really good. And I start and like, oh, wait a minute. And sometimes I don't realize until somebody else calls it out. What he's saying here is, yes, your experiences and your emotions and your feelings are absolutely important. And they are a, 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 a validation of your salvation and your experience of Christ. But they must be rooted in a historical event and a historical person and a historical truth. And that's where it starts. Of all the religious books, I've read all of them. It's part of them. I've at least all of them. Not one of them is rooted in history. Not one of them. I know sometimes you read and you're like, oh, and the year that Augustus was Caesar and Quranus had it was governor and he's taking a census and you're like, whatever, I don't even know who these people are, right? <laughs> or you read these genealogies of this guy beget this guy and it's like, these are just a bunch of names I can't pronounce. Can't we just get these? 
or this war is happening and then da 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 and you're like what this is so long ago I'm not a history person I just want to know some theological truth that helps me connect with Jesus right but you have to understand something that's not found in any other books there's no religious book has that stuff every religious book is disconnected from history and events people this is the irony people actually use the bible to know where to dig and find cities and every time they dig where the bible tells them they find them which is ironic because a lot of these people actually are trying to prove the bible wrong and they use the bible to find where the city is and they dig and they find the city and they try to find things in the city that will prove the bible wrong it's like the only reason you knew to dig there was because of the bible and this is what john is saying like these are real historical events and no other religious book has that no other book has that kind of stuff and so it's rooted in history you know this happens archaeology is constantly validating the bible over and over again there are many things that we have not proven yet but there's nothing that has been disproven for john this this is the foundation of your faith john proclaims that the eternal spiritual son of god was incarnated as a human and lived on earth Christianity requires that the historical truths on which this is based to be true. For if they are not, then Christianity will fall apart. If Jesus Christ never existed, died, or rose again, then there would be no more Christianity. Yet this is not the true with the false religions. However, however, John is also making it clear that Christianity is not just based on doctrines and truths and ideas, but it's also a very real powerful spiritual experience that we have seen we have touched i did experience it so that you may have fellowship which is an experience and that both of these are valid both of these are pillars in the christian faith it is this idea of fellowship that introduces the main idea of the discussions in first john one through two which becomes the foundation for everything else discussed in first john three through five how does one truly have fellowship with Yahweh? For John, it is through Jesus Christ as the God-man who died for the sins of the world and was resurrected to give true life, fellowship, and joy. So this prologue is opening up and saying this, this is what you must embrace. This truth and this experience. Because in the next two chapters, I'm going to talk about what it means to have fellowship with God. But there's no point if you don't embrace this and everything i talk about fellowship everything i talk about with walking with god and knowing god it's all rooted in this idea that the word that is god became flesh revealed it to all people to understand and gave us the commission to make it known to more people so there is no privatization there is no exclusivity there is no ivory tower there is no earned or learned there is no hidden secret meaning and we are going out to reveal so you may have fellowship with the Father and Jesus Christ and with us so you may have life to the fullest and your joy be complete. Now, with that understanding, let's go into what it means to actually have fellowship with God. Does that make sense?